The video includes excerpts of the inspiring speech that Martin Luther King gave the night before he was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. It was practically prophetic on all sorts of levels. He talked about how the threats were all around him, how people told him not to come to Memphis, how he could be killed if he did, how he knew that that was a good possibility, and yet he was at peace. And yet he came because he believed in what he was doing so much he was willing to die for the cause. And he spoke with courage and with eloquence and with God's spirit in him. It's good to remember that Martin Luther King was a preacher, that he was a child of God, that it's because he was grounded in the scriptures that he was able to do what he did in ways that other people tried to make movements happen and continue to try to make movements happen but don't have the grounding of scripture and don't have the boundaries of scripture. And his life made the world around him better. Here's what I want to say to you today among other things, so can yours. Your life either is a positive light for the world around you or it is the opposite of that. And it's hard to really say that there's any bigger calling in our lives. The thing about Martin Luther King that fascinates me so much isn't just that he was a grounded in God's word preacher who ultimately God gave a much bigger stage to. He didn't ask for it, he didn't campaign for it. It just happened to him because it was God's call on his life. But it's the way he did it. It's the way he did it that was so counter to culture. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, and for good reason, is Romans 12. It says, do not be conformed to the ways of this world, but instead be transformed by God, by his spirit. Change the way you think. Let it transform you. Let it transform the way you see the world. Don't go with the flow of this world. Going with the flow of this world is so overrated. I, I know that it fits in. I, I know that it makes you like everybody else, and, and, and me too, and the temptation is huge. And the flow, I mean, the, the, the force of the current of this world is so strong. Sometimes it's hard, but God calls us to something else. He calls us to learn how to swim upstream in a downstream world. He learns, he teaches us how not to go with the flow, how to find a life that's gonna be a better light for the world around us, and how, how to find a life that ultimately ultimately is going to illuminate our souls too. It is the narrow path that Jesus talks about in his Sermon on the Mount. It isn't the road that most people take. And so you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. You're, you're, you're going to look like that fish swimming upstream in a downstream world. People are going to wonder why you're doing it. What's in it for you? It doesn't seem like there's any benefit. But do not be conformed to this world. The Bible warns but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let God change the way you think. Let him inspire you to be what he created you to be, a light for the world around you. One of the things that King did that was so countercultural, that was so upstream in a downstream world, is he preached and he insisted on nonviolence. Instead of starting a civil war, instead of uh, responding to violence against him and to, to other people because of the color of their skin, because of their race, because of their ethnicity, because of their background, because of the oppression, instead of responding with oppression, instead of responding to violence with violence, he responded with civil disobedience, with nonviolence, with peace, with love. 
He famously said, only love is powerful enough to overcome this hate. Only light is powerful enough to overcome this darkness. We can't find dark, fight darkness with more darkness. We can't fight hatred with more hatred and expect to be successful. Because it just begets more hatred. Nonviolence means avoiding not only external physical violence, King said, but also internal violence of spirit. Wow. You not only refuse to shoot a man, but you refuse to hate him. You don't let that hatred get into your heart. You don't let it take over. Our Bible reading for today from Genesis chapter 4, God says to Cain, the older of the two brothers who are stuck in this sibling rival, the, the rivalry, this, this envy that the big brother has toward his little brother because he's been given favor by God and Cain doesn't feel like he's got the same opportunity. And so Cain is angry and he's bitter about it and he's filled with envy and he's filled with hatred toward his little brother, which ultimately is going to lead to violence and murder. God says to Cain, warning him before he gets to that point of violence, he says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door, at the door of your heart, like a, like a panther ready to pounce on its prey, hiding in the weeds, but seeing its victim come toward it. That's what envy does, God is saying to Cain. That's what the darkness does to us. It's it's just flexed and ready to pounce upon you. It's crouching at your door, ready to unleash upon you. And so we poo-poo these things. We say, oh, it's just sibling rivalry. It's just envy. I mean, it's no big deal. Everybody does it. I know everybody does it. But God calls you to something else. And me too. To turn away from, conf from conforming to the rest of this world and following the patterns and the, and the customs of this world and changing the way we think, renewing our minds for the sake of people around us but for our own sake too, which is what King did. He called the world around him to the narrow path, to a nonconformist way. To not attack when you get attacked, but to turn the other cheek, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And these stories ring true. Remember, he was grounded in God's word. That's why he had the courage and the inspiration to say the things that he said consistently until the day he died. I'm not saying he was a perfect man. We don't worship anybody except Jesus Christ. And King would be one of the first ones to say that too if he was here today. He said, do not worship me. Worship the one who inspires me. Worship the one who calls you too and inspires you to a better life, to that narrow pathway. Throughout the book of Genesis, which we're taking a look at as we kick off this new year here at Hope. Each week for six weeks in this new year, each weekend, we're looking at a different story in the book of Genesis which is all about these temptations to either go the way of the world or to turn around and go God's way. And as we read these stories in Genesis, we're reading stories about us. I mean, literally last week, the story about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and Adam's name means human, and Eve's name means life or giver of life. And so we're reading about Adam and Eve, but we're also reading about us, human life. I mean, it couldn't be more blatant in the original Hebrew of Genesis. Turn the page to Genesis 4, and you think Adam and Eve were messed up, meet their kids. <laughs> Which a lot of us probably feel like is the story of our lives too, you know, sometimes. My parents could probably say the same thing. You think we're kooky, meet our kids. 
And it goes on and on and on and on. Genesis tells stories about real people in real life situations. One of the biggest problems with Christians in the world today is we fake it. We pretend to be more Christian than we really are, more spiritual than we really are, more righteous, more religious, more moral, more together, more, 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 more clean and holy and all those pure kinds of things. When the reality is we're more like the people we read about in Genesis. Flawed, fallen, tempted, conflicted, in the midst of all sorts of challenging situations. Cain and Abel are certainly there, which as we go through this series, we're using Netflixy type binge-worthy series that are very popular on TV these days. Last week it was Breaking Bad, and if you're sitting there right now thinking whatever campus you're at or here in West Des Moines, you're thinking, oh, Breaking Bad, that's my favorite show. Ah, I, I, should have, I should have caught that one. You should have, you missed it. Too bad, it's gone now. You say, oh, well, I'll get it online. No, we don't have copyright to continue to, we can show them live, but we can't show them online. It's over. You, missed, you should come every week. You really should. That's what the Bible says, by the way. This week, though, we turn the page to Arrested Development. You're like, oh, I hate that show. Or some people are like, I love that show. You either love it or you hate it. Either you have that kind of a sense of humor that tracks with this kind of <laughs> comedy, I'm weird and so I do, or you are like, that's not even funny. And as I show these clips, 90% of the people are like, that's not even funny, but you'll get the point anyway. And 10% of you will think it's the funniest thing we've ever shown in this church. And that's okay. That's Arrested Development, which tells the story of the Bluth family. The family that makes your family look healthy. That makes your family look functional. This is George Oscar Bluth I. He's the patriarch of the family. This is his wife, Lucille I. George Oscar Bluth I is in prison, and then he escapes prison, and he flees to Mexico because he's been building homes with Saddam Hussein in Iraq, and it's highly illegal, and it's, it's a terrible thing, and he's doing it all for the money, and he's corrupt, and he doesn't care, and so that trickles down to his kids, and they're completely messed up. The two oldest uh, children of George and Lucille are... Job, George Oscar Bluth II, G-O-B, Job for short, and his younger brother Michael. Michael is as close to normal as anybody on this show. He's kind of the, if there is a steady force, and he's not that steady, but if there is a steady force in this show, it's Michael. He's astute. He's got the potential to save his family. He's trying. He's trying to save the company. He's trying to do these things, but their father, who's now escaped to Mexico, has appointed Job the president of the company for all sorts of really dysfunctional reasons, and Job is... The seven deadly sins that summarize sin in the Bible, the stuff that takes life away from you, that's why it's called deadly, that kills you, Job pretty much is all seven of them. He's lazy, he's slothful, he's envious, he's lustful, he's, he's all these terrible things, and he's a magician if he isn't just lying around on the couch in their model McMansion home that they built, which is falling apart as the series goes along as their lives are falling apart, a perfect metaphor. But he's a magician who can't get constant work, so they call him a, a part-time magician. And he's a terrible magician. His, his illusions never work quite right. And they're a lot like Cain and Abel. Cain is the older brother. Abel is the younger brother. When they grew up, Abel was the shepherd. Abel, sorry, over here. Michael was the shepherd. Cain, Job, cultivated the ground. He was the farmer. The guy who wrote Arrested Development 
was a theology major in college. And this comes through. Theology meaning the study of God. He spent his college years majoring in the study of God. And it comes through in this show, not because the show is Christian or righteous. In fact, it takes a lot of shots at religious things along the way. But you see the themes. You see he understands the temptations. He understands how easy it is to conform to the ways of this world and how God calls us to something better, to something more. As we read the story in Genesis 4, which is even better than the comedy series on Netflix, starting in verse 3, it goes like this. When it was time for the harvest, Cain, the older brother, everyone say older brother, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. It was time to go to church. It was time to give offerings. It was time to worship God. Abel also came to worship God and to give his offerings. He brought a gift as well, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. Here's the part that um, it's kind of hard to read because at best it's, it's uh, frustrating to us that we think God would play favorites and at worst it's disturbing. But God's playing not favorites, God is trying to get Cain's attention and turn him to a better life because his gift isn't given with the right heart. Remember Martin Luther King said, it's not just what you do on the outside, it's not just whether you're violent or nonviolent. it's what's in your heart. Do you hate somebody in your heart? Or do you have love even for the people who go after you? Even the people who persecute you, that's hard. It's incredibly hard. But this is the spiritual challenge. And this is the God who calls Cain and us and Job to a better way. Abel brought his gift, Cain brought his gift to God, but the Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. <laughs> that doesn't seem fair, we say from our perspective, but we don't have God's perspective. Here's what's even more frustrating or disturbing, depending on how you look at it. The Bible doesn't seem to care to tell us why. Other than this little hint that Abel brought the first fruits, the best of his offering, the best of the sheep that he was keeping, that he was taking care of, and Abel just looked at his harvest and said, how'd I do this year? I guess I'll give God this much. Pfft, there you go. And then that reminds us of what the Bible says about giving. To sum it up, there are four levels, biblically speaking, of giving. The first level is to say, what's in it for me? If I'm going to give this gift, is anyone going to notice? Am I going to get my name on, on, a, on a plaque on a wall somewhere so people can see how much I give? And am I going to get a tax benefit for it? Is there something in it for me? I mean, why would I give if I'm not going to get anything? Well, that's not giving then, is it? If the motivation, the main motivation for giving a gift is to get something in return, God says, the Bible says, your reward will be whatever the world gives you for that. However much attention you get for your generosity, however much, however much people praise you for what a big giver you are, however much people say, wow, I saw your name on that plaque, you're really something else. Please don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with doing that or getting your name on a plaque. Nothing wrong at all. Except, know this, God says it doesn't count as far as I'm concerned. It doesn't impress me. Because I don't just want your gift and your charity. God says, I want your heart. I don't want you to give to get something in return. 
I want you to give because it's who you are, because it's a natural response to what's in your heart, to my grace. So the first level of giving, there's nothing wrong with it biblically, it's just something God's not impressed with. 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I give gifts that are the most impressive gifts in the world, but I don't do it with love, I gain nothing. I get only the reward the world gives me. I don't get rewarded or credit for it from God. So there's a deeper level of giving in the Bible, a little bit, not much, which is the just doing my part approach to giving. Well, you know, I'll give to this charity because somebody has to and I hope everybody else does their part and we'll all do our part and then we'll help this thing and we believe in the cause. Better reason, we believe in the cause, we want to help out, we want to do our part. But is your heart really all the way in it still? Third level of giving, the Bible says, because God wants our heart is, <laughs> this is my, I call it the win-win approach. Hey God, if I, uh, if I give you a little something extra this Sunday in the offering plate, make sure I get that promotion, okay? And we're on Tuesday. May, may, make sure she says yes when I ask her to prom. May, make sure that I, that, that I make the, the starting lineup on the team. You know, if, if I scratch your back, God, you're going to scratch mine too. We're going to make a little deal, right? I'm taking care of you. You take care of me, God, and we'll have a relationship. It's going to be really dysfunctional. <laughs> or the flip side of the same coin, hey, God, if you're good to me, and we'll wait and see, if you're good to me, then I'll give you a little something for the trouble. You know, kind of like going to a restaurant. If you get good service, big tip. Here you go, God. If you, if you give me a good year, I'm going to give you a little more. That's going to be our deal. We're getting closer because now at least it's about a relationship with our creator. But hopefully you're catching that we're still not there. The best way to give, the deepest way to give, biblically speaking, is the simplest. It is a natural response to the goodness and the grace of God. Notice I didn't say a natural response to all the worldly blessings you get or, I, or don't get or I get or don't get. It is a natural response to God's grace and his goodness for us. And so we naturally respond with generosity, freely giving, cheerfully giving. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. That's the goal. That when you give the birthday present, when you give the Christmas present, when you give the anniversary present, when you give to charity, when you give your offering to church, when you give of yourself your time, your talents, your treasures, all those things, when you give, it is a cheerful, cheerful experience. You are filled with cheer. You are filled with joy. And you don't give because you want to get credit for it. And you don't give because you want people to praise you for it. And you don't give to try to get something in return later or to get a better gift from them later. You give because it's who you are and who I am. It's what's in our heart because God wants all of us. He wants our hearts. He doesn't just want our gifts. He wants our motivation to be good. And you say, well, God is so demanding. The reason God's so demanding to us and to Cain in this story in Genesis 4 is he wants Cain to have his best life. He doesn't want him to miss it. He wants him to be free. He wants him to be cheerful. He wants him to be generous. He doesn't want money to have its hooks into Cain or into us or envy or jealousy or greed or any of the other deadly sins. So when we're right with God, we're responding to somebody who saved our lives. That's what God has done. Without God, we don't have life. We're not even here. Without God, we have no hope. 
for new life or eternal life or the assurance that the door of heaven has been opened for us, that God's got a room reserved for us in a mansion in heaven for eternity. Without God, we don't have any of this. God has saved our lives. If somebody saves your life, if somebody steps in front of a bus and saves your life and and pushes you out of the way, do you just get up and walk away and not acknowledge the person? Somebody saves your life, you're like, ah, you saved my life, I owe you everything. Yeah, we do. God has saved our lives. And so we give with our heart in this place. And so it comes out naturally, it's, it's who we are. But be careful, Cain, God says to him. Sin is crouching at your door, ready to devour you. You must subdue it. You must control it before it controls you. In one of the episodes, season two of Arrested Development, Michael is trying to save the company. Job, his big brother, has been appointed president by their father who's in Mexico now fleeing uh, prison and, and just for all sorts of crazy reasons makes him the president that don't make any sense. Job doesn't know what he's doing. Michael does know what he's doing. And Job keeps trying in the sibling rivalry to impress the board and to impress other people. And they fight about their business models. And Michael has this idea to build a new model home so it'll get more attention for their home building company. And maybe they can get this company started again until the sibling rivalry takes over. That's the problem with envy. Biblically speaking, here's a quick four-point summary of what's wrong with envy. Number one, biblically, we hurt ourselves the most, not the person we're envious of. Have you ever stopped to think about that? The person you envy is not affected by it hardly at all, but you and I are. We hurt ourselves the most. Proverbs 14 says envy is a cancer. It takes life away from us. 1 Corinthians 13 says love never envies. It never comes together like that. Second problem with envy biblically is we falsely assume that there's a blessings limit. But the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 9 and elsewhere, God provides for all of our needs. And just because somebody else has something that you want, that I want, it doesn't mean that God won't give it to us later. Or or that, that we won't walk with faith and trust that God will provide for us. Or that what we think we want or need, we don't really need, which leads to the third one. I believe the lie that I need more than God to experience joy. We don't. The Bible says we rejoice because we're in the Lord, that we have a relationship with God. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are people who are going through all sorts of challenging times because they're in a relationship with me, because they have something deeper, because they have something more significant, because they have something that will stand the test of time. Because they have something that will reward us with forgiveness of sins. God's grace and mercy poured out for us in eternal life. The consequences of envy, though, the worst one, the one that kills our joy, that poisons us. It's the panther that's crouching at the door of our lives. If it isn't checked, if it isn't curbed, it opens the door for bigger messes. James 3.16 says, evil leads to all kinds of chaos, of disorder, and of evil. And so it does. Job and Michael, Cain and Abel, you and whoever you compete with, the person that you envy. Let let me ask you this question, but it's a challenge to me too. If somebody else gets something that you want and you didn't get it, are you happy for that person? Do you celebrate with that person? The Bible says we rejoice together and we weep together. We're for each other. We're in this together. And if somebody else gets what I don't want, if the Vikings win today and the Bears are in the offseason playing golf, 
I'm happy for you. <laughs> I would be. I would hope I would be. I would be happy for those of you who, like Cubs fans, have waited and waited and waited and waited to get back to the Super Bowl. Oh, God bless you if you make it. And if you don't, we'll be here next week for healing prayer. <laughs> You're playing the saints. Ugh. I mean, think about that. The saints. Saints. God's saint. Anyway. And you're heathen Vikings. But anyway, there is this gap. I'll be happy for you Saints fans too if you win. I got no dog in this hunt anymore. But can you be happy for somebody, that's just a silly sports example. Can you be happy for somebody who gets something you want? Or do you feel like you need to tear them down to your level in order to feel good about yourself? That's how envy gets its hooks into you and to me. And takes life away from us. Because that's not reality. It's the way of the world, but don't be conformed to the ways of this world, the Bible says. Instead, turn around and be transformed. Envy opens the door for way bigger messes. Job and Michael in Arrested Development, a little bit later in the same episode, they get to the point where the model home has been built. Michael did all the work with his crew. He built it, and then Job comes in to take the credit, riding on his Segway, trampling over the flowers. And from there, their rock, paper, scissors game well, it spins into complete dysfunctionality and madness. Envy leads to all kinds of disorder and evil, the Bible says. Sin is crouching at your door, Cain. Be careful with it. You've got to subdue it before it turns into a bigger mess where rock beats scissors, but the paper covers it all, as you saw. Only in the biblical version, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The TV version is comedy. It's just for fun, but it points us to who we are, because it's so well written, and the guy who wrote it's this theology student from college, and he puts all of these temptations in there, and the, and, and the moral dilemmas we have, and, and which way we go when we have the opportunity, and how if we don't go God's way, it all falls apart. Little subtle jokes throughout the whole thing, solid as a rock, their father built illegal homes in Iraq. And so they're singing that song, and the, and the whole uh, thing that, that filtrates throughout the series. The family, which is moderately Christian in a sort of kind of way, and then they become Jewish, and then they become Christian again. On Sunday mornings, instead of going to church, they go to a bistro called <laughs> Skip's Church Bistro. <laughs> and when they become Jewish, they skip temple by going to a restaurant called Miss temples, uh, and so they're missing temple and they're skipping church, and it's all in there. And the temptations are all in there for us too, every Sunday, every week, every day of our lives, every sibling rivalry that starts to bubble up, all those places where we have to decide, which way am I going to go, which ultimately is a question of faith, isn't it? Who do you trust? Do you trust the world to tell you which way to go, or do you trust God? Do you trust the culture to say, be like us, fight the fights the way we fight the fights. Fight fire with fire, power with power, force with force, violence with violence. Or do you say, what do you say, Jesus? I say, turn the other cheek. I say, follow the narrow path. I say the same thing I said to Martin Luther King. I say, go this way, because only love has the power to overcome hate. Where do we go for examples of this? I mean, other than places like a generation ago to Martin Luther King, as we get ready to celebrate his birthday tomorrow, well, you could watch college football. 
In the championship game between Alabama and Georgia, which I didn't give a hoot about. I mean, who cares about those teams? I do not care. But I love sports, and so I did tune in for the end of the game. Caught the back half of the fourth quarter, and then it went into overtime. It was a great game. Apparently, I didn't catch all this during the game, and I haven't followed Alabama very close at all. If they were teams I liked, I would have been all into it. But I don't care for these teams. It's the SEC, boo. And, uh, maybe it's envy. I don't know. I need to work on that. But here's Jalen, the quarterback, starting quarterback for Alabama pretty much all season. He's the man. He's the starting quarterback. He's earned it on this team, of this team that's in a game for the national championship. So you can imagine how talented he is and how good he is and how he's risen to this huge responsible role as the quarterback of this potential national champion college football team. Only he has a kind of not so good first half and the coach benches him at halftime. And he puts in his, the second stringer, Tua, who a year ago was playing high school football in Hawaii. And now a year later, he's on the biggest stage, college football stage in the world, with millions and millions of people watching and all the lights and all of the stress. Can you imagine? Last year, you're playing for your high school football team, and now as a true freshman, the coach says, you're in. You've hardly taken a snap all year, except just to clean up the messes when you're beating some poor team by 112 points. And now you're going in to try to lead your team back against another great team, Georgia, and there doesn't seem to be any hope at all, and you do. You have this epic, incredible second half. Your team ties the game. You go into overtime, and on the first play of overtime on your side of the ball, you get sacked. Terrible decision, but you're just a kid who's out of high school. What are you supposed to do? The next play, he shakes it off, and like a veteran Super Bowl champion, he, he, with his eyes, moves the safety, playing the cover two zone defense, off to the other receiver, leaving his receiver he wanted to throw it to, he wasn't even looking at, wide open, and without even looking, he starts to move and throw, left-handed is what he is, and so I'm doing it that way, he throws it to the guy, who's now wide open, drops the bomb pass right into his hands, the guy couldn't have missed it if he tried, and he struts into the end zone, and Alabama wins the national championship. My question for you is, how do you feel if you're Jalen? That was your spotlight. That was your moment. That's what you've been working on forever, your whole life. And this kid comes in and gets it. So... The drama of sports, the way it's covered, and this is just the media doing their job. They put the lights and the cameras and the microphones, and their first interview is Jalen after the game. So how does that feel, Jalen? Maybe we can get you to say something wrong. He has no chance to go into the locker room, to talk to speechwriters, to talk to some PR handlers, to get him to say it the right way. It's just him in the moment. How do you feel? What was it like watching your backup win the game for your team, the national championship on the biggest stage in college football for your team when you've been the man all year? What would you say if you were honest? Because I believe he was completely honest. But as a follower of Jesus Christ on the narrow path, 
If you were watching the second half, you probably already know what he's going to say. Because every time his substitute came off the field, whether the series was successful or not, Jalen was there to put his arm around him, to walk him back to the other coaches, to talk about what went right and how they could do better the next series. And so he said, I'll just paraphrase, Tua is my teammate. I'm all for him, 100%. I couldn't be happier. This is a team win. We won. Then they put the microphone in front of Tua, and he says, this is great, all glory to God and to Jesus Christ, my Savior and Lord, who gives me this opportunity. And then he says, yeah, I just looked off the safety and I threw the power. <laughs> He's a kid. And then at the end, to make sure it doesn't get missed, he says, and again, I want to say, all glory to God, because I wouldn't have this opportunity without him. Am I my brother's keeper, Cain says to God, after Cain murders his brother, and God says, what did you do? Am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> where, where's Abel? Where's your brother? <laughs> what, am I in charge of keeping track of where my brother is? Is that my responsibility? Isn't it everybody look out for themselves? Isn't he on his own and I'm on my own and I take care of me and he takes care of him? Doesn't that sound familiar? It should, because the world tells us that every day. And God says, no, turn around. Let me show you a better way. Am I my brother's keeper? That's what Cain says. And this is a sarcastic statement. It's a sar sarcastic question. In the original Hebrew, what Cain is saying is, am I the keeper's keeper? Am I the sheep keeper's shepherd? Am I the shepherd of the shepherd? Am I, am I, am I somehow suddenly responsible for him? I've got other stuff to do. Why would you ask me that, God? Because God knows your heart, Cain. And God wants you to have a better life. And God's answer comes, not here in Genesis 4, but it comes in the rest of the story throughout Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all through the Old Testament and into the Gospels and the Epistles and in all the way through the book of Revelation, the answer comes in the Bible to this sarcastic question from God to us over and over and over and over again. God consistently says, yes, you are. You absolutely are your brother's keeper. You absolutely are your sister's keeper. You absolutely are created not for yourself but for other people, for the sake of loving them, for the sake of kicking the hatred out of you. You are your brother's keeper. Martin Luther King put it this way. He says, we are inevitably our brother's keeper because we are our brother's brother. It's who we are. Whatever affects one directly affects us all indirectly. This is who we are. And so we live in a world where it's the, the world tells us over and over again, come this way, conform to our way of thinking. You're on your own. Don't care about them. Envy them. Fight against them. If they come after you, go after them worse so they never come back again. And God says there's no life in that. Sin is crouching at your door like a panther ready to pounce on you. Let me show you a better way. Let me show you a better way. How to turn the other cheek how to live a better life. From that famous speech we started with that Martin Luther King gave the night before he was assassinated, almost with a vision that he knew it was gonna happen, he says this. He says, the world is all messed up. Maybe you feel that way sometimes. Because you look at your family, you look at your friends, you look at your life, you look at your career, 
You look at worldly things and you say, oh my goodness, or you read the news. And you say, what? Really? The world is all messed up, King said in this famous speech. The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land. Confusion all around. So do we give up? Do we join the divisiveness and the demonization that happens in the world? Do we go after the other sides? Do we, do we try to defeat everybody? Do we just look out for ourselves? Or do we show true leadership as Christians, as children of God like Martin Luther King did, who instead of making it all about us, we make it all about everybody else, the least of these. Instead of condemning them and mocking them and chastising them, we lift them up and we say, this is my brother. This is my sister. This is my neighbor. This is the transformed life that God calls us to that isn't just a light for the world around us. It's the illumination of your soul. It's the freedom that might be missing from your life because you're playing the world's games. I know somehow, King says, I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And so if God asked me what era, what time, what, 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 what part of history would you want to live in, I would tell him this one. Right here and right now in the midst of all the darkness, in the midst of all the oppression, in the midst of all the racism, in the midst of all the divisiveness, because when it's dark enough, that's when you can see the stars the brightest. And I see God working, King goes on to say, with hopefulness, in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up, and we see it here too. We saw it here last weekend when at all of our campuses, the call went out, and hundreds of people were, were raised up and inspired to come forward and to come to the waters of holy baptism, and were baptized into this new life. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up. Christmas Eve at Wells Fargo Arena? Are you kidding me? I still can't fully process what happened there. It just absolutely blew me away. You've got to be kidding. What was that? Well, something is happening in our world, and it isn't us. It's the Holy Spirit. So don't you dare give up hope. Don't you dare give up hope, children of God. I've gone on record the last six months or so, and I'll say it again. As a nation, we're either going to break or we're going to experience revival. And revival's coming if you turn around and follow the better way and get on that narrow path. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up. Be the church. Be the church. Be the church. Show the world around you the way. Let's stand and sing. I'll turn it over to the campuses.